Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, this is Charles Kimball from the History of Southeast Asia podcast. Don't worry, you've come to the right place. I am here to introduce Max Sargent and the Latin American History podcast. Max has tackled a truly formidable subject. Latin America and the Caribbean region contain 34 nations and even more cultures. However, this part of the world gets little attention in most history texts if it gets any attention at all. For example, the university I attended did not offer a course in Latin American history until the year after I graduated. So listen and enjoy, while Max gives equal time to the history of the nations that make up two-thirds of the Western Hemisphere. And afterwards, check out my podcast too. For Southeast Asia, the 11 countries between India China, and Australia, I also promise to tell you some stories you have never heard before. I'd buy that for a dollar. We now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast. Episode 17, The Iberians, Part 1. So we have now finished our tour of pre-Columbian Latin America, and we're almost ready to move on to the beginning of the colonial period. We'll soon be dealing with Columbus, the first settlements in the New World, and the process of conquest. These podcasts will soon take the form of a narrative, where I can tell the story of what individuals did, as opposed to the overviews I've been doing on the different native cultures so far. Before we're ready to do this, however, I feel I need to give a short outline of the Iberian nations of Spain and Portugal. This will by no means be an in-depth history of the two countries. However, in order to understand how and why they approached the New World, you must understand how they got to where they were when they first discovered it. Iberian history is fascinating, and the events that preceded Columbus really affected the national characters of the two countries, and what happened in the Americas. The Iberian Peninsula is of course the roughly square-shaped bit of land that sticks out at the very southwest of Europe. To the east is the Mediterranean, while to the west is the Atlantic. Its north is composed largely of more Atlantic coastline while the eastern section of this connects to modern-day France along the Pyrenees mountain range, 
The south is again all coastline, but it's very close to North Africa in today's Morocco. The Straits of Gibraltar form the closest point between the two landmasses and the only exit of the Mediterranean. Here you can see Morocco from Spain. In Roman times, this area was the province of Hispania. Hispania was an important province of their empire. This is where Hadrian was from. It is also, however, one of their most unruly provinces. Geography meant that it was hard to pacify remote areas. The people were of mixed origin. There were, of course, some Romans, but there were also Celts. There was a large group called the Suebi. Before the Romans arrived, the Carthaginians had colonies in Spain as well. So although their legacy is muted, there may have been some small impact on the ethnic makeup of some parts of Spain. There were also groups that were of mixed culture between these elements. Latin was, of course, the language of the empire, and was spoken in Spain. As the empire declined, Latin took on regional differences in different places. This is the origin of modern-day Italian, as well as its many various dialects, as well as French, which had many different forms, the Iberian languages, and even Romanian. As movement declined with the empire, and places became more inward-looking, this diversion of Latin happened on a very local level. I think that rather than neatly delineated different languages, we should imagine a spectrum. All of the Romance languages had the same roots, but one village might use a few different words to the next, and so on, until the Latin spoken in what became Portugal was very different to that spoken in southern Italy. As time moved on, these differences grew, resulting in the languages we have today. This localism in speech, however, has never really gone away even if it's been reduced. There are still elderly people in Italy who cannot speak Italian. In fact, Italian is simply the dialect of Tuscany, which was chosen to be the national standard in the early 20th century. While the dialects that these elderly people speak are linguistically very similar to Italian, someone from Sicily might have trouble understanding the dialect of a valley in the Alps. I have a friend from Italy who lives in the Alpine foothills north of Brescia, he has told me that his grandmother speaks the local dialect and cannot speak Italian. He can communicate with her, he says, but someone from another part of the country might find conversation with her difficult. The same is true in Spain and Portugal. Today, standard Spanish is Castilian. But today, Catalan, Galician and Leonese are all spoken in various regions and hover around the border of being different languages and dialects. This is very important, as the regional differences will affect later history, and some would say that even today they have an impact. For this reason, there is no such thing, really, as a Spaniard. The different peoples of Iberia came together to form Spain and Portugal, only due to quirks in feudal inheritance laws. It's only because of this that Portugal became a separate country, and Spain unified. It's not, therefore, due to innate differences in culture, and it could easily have been Catalonia or Navarra that were independent countries rather than Portugal. Speaking of Navarra, I may as well mention the other group of people who live within the Spanish nation now. While there are certainly differences, all the various Spanish groups I've mentioned so far share their Latin origin, except for the Basques. Nobody knows where these people came from, and they speak a language which is completely unique. 
it's not linked to any others that we know of. They live in the northeast of Spain, along the western half of the border with France, as well as over on the French side of the border. They were there when the Romans first expanded into the area, and they've been there ever since. Their lands would form the basis of the Kingdom of Navarra, which we'll come to later. There are several theories as to their origin, but none can be said to be generally accepted as the mainstream theory. One such theory is that they are partially descended from Europe's Neanderthal population. Of course, this is a bit of a contentious argument. Despite their differences with other Spaniards, the Basques would become an important part of the Spanish nation, and many Basques played an important role in the Spanish Americas. After the Romans pulled out of Iberia, the local tribes were left to fend for themselves. The great migrations of the period saw Germanic tribes move through the area, including the Vandals, who passed through on their way to form a kingdom in North Africa. One group stuck around, they were the Visigoths, and they established a kingdom which spanned France and Spain. They ruled for around 300 years, and during this time they left their cultural and genetic influence on the local population. Eventually their kingdom started to collapse. The area around Barcelona was brought into Charlemagne's Frankish Empire. The most important event of the era, however, was the arrival of the Caliphate. After bursting out of the Arabian Peninsula and conquering the Levant, Iran and North Africa, the Muslim Empire under the Umayyads reached Spain and invaded across the Straits of Gibraltar. They quickly conquered most of the peninsula from the Visigoths and threatened the whole of Western Europe. They marched deep into France and it was only when they were defeated at the Battle of Tours that they settled for holding the land in Iberia which they'd already conquered. This left the Iberian peoples with only a strip of land along the very northern part of the peninsula. They did not even have a land border with their Christian neighbours in France, as the northeast was part of the Caliphate. They inhabited a mountainous and remote area, and it's this geography that probably allowed the Christian survival there. That's not to say that there were not Iberian Christians in the rest of Spain. Many continued to live where they always had, only under their new Muslim overlords. Iberia, under the Muslims, was a remarkably tolerant place by the standards of the time, and Christians were generally allowed to continue practicing their religion. It also became home to a large Jewish community, being one of the most important centres for the religion at the time. That's not to say that the Iberians had it too easy, however. They were still a conquered people, and would have been unable to occupy high places in the social hierarchy. Iberia under the Muslims flourished, and became an important part of the Caliphate. It became a centre for learning and culture, with grand palaces and castles being built. If you were a Muslim at the time, Iberia would have been one of the better parts of the empire to live in. It was not always a peaceful place, however. When the Abbasid dynasty deposed the Umayyads, the only surviving Umayyad fled to Iberia. Parts of the Caliphate started to break off into independent states, and the Umayyads ruled their smaller Spanish kingdom. This state would eventually break up. This state would eventually break up, and several smaller kingdoms, known as Taifas, competed with each other for power and influence. Eventually the Berber people of North Africa, also known as the Moors, would sweep in across the Straits of Gibraltar, and create a strong empire which spanned both sides of the Straits. 
So how did Spain and Portugal come to own the territories which they do today? Well, they embarked on a struggle known as the Reconquista, or Reconquest, which lasted for centuries. At the end of it, they'd managed to expel the last Muslims from the peninsula. The first person to really start this process was a man named Palayo. This small warlord led the Christians to their first real victory, since the Berbers had first come to Iberia, at a place called Covadonga, sometime around the year 720. While this was a significant moment for the Christians, and the genesis of the Reconquista, in truth, it was more of a skirmish than a battle, and probably was of little importance to the Muslim leaders at the time. As I hinted at earlier, throughout the Reconquista, the Christian holdings of the peninsula were split between several kingdoms. Initially, in Palaio's time, it was just the kingdom of Asturias. Later, as more land was taken back, this split into the kingdoms of Galicia, León, Castile, Aragon and Navarra. Catalonia was at times an independent duchy, although it was later incorporated into Aragon. Portugal was a duchy, which formed part of the kingdom of Galicia. The identities formed by these kingdoms would last right up into the present day. Although these kingdoms would unify, they never really solved the problem of uniting the people. So as I mentioned, the various languages are still spoken, and if you've been watching the news recently, you'll know that Catalonia is in the midst of an attempt to declare independence from Spain. This is a legacy of this time. Over the centuries, these kingdoms slowly expanded southwards through a long and difficult series of wars with the Muslims. They were roughly arranged in a row across the north of the peninsula, and each kingdom expanded southwards to create strips. Moving from west to east, you had Galicia, León, Castile, Navarra, and then Aragon. At different times, the exact nature of their enemy changed. Initially, they were fighting the Umayyads. At some points, their enemies were split into small taifas, which I mentioned earlier, while at other points, they were facing the might of the united Berber Empire under the Almohads. There is, of course, so much more to say about the Reconquista, but for our purposes, we can condense it down into a long and slow pushing south by the Christian kingdoms, as well as their slow unification into each other. Although, by the time Columbus started his explorations, they hadn't quite formed into the nations we know today. That said, the process of Reconquista would have strong and lasting influences on the Iberian nations, so despite skipping over the fine details of the Reconquista, we are going to have a look at some of the strong and lasting influences it had on the Iberian nations, in terms of their national characters and cultures. These would in turn affect their actions in the New World, and how history played out there. A practical example can be found in the genetics and language of Iberia. Today, as a general trend, Spaniards from the south are darker than those in the north. This probably illustrates the genetic legacy of the Arab and Berber populations of the time, as well as perhaps the Jewish one. Many towns and cities with Spanish and Portuguese-sounding names are actually of Arab origin. The Portuguese region of the Algarve comes from the Arabic Algarb, which means the West. Granada was Garnata, 
which means hill of strangers, while Almeria was originally Al-Muraya, the watchtower. Some of these names actually predate the Arab conquests and have been mangled through several languages. The Roman town of Caesar Augustus, for example, became Saraquista, which then became Zaragoza under the Spanish. Many of these place names were then used again in Latin America, meaning that the Arabic legacy can be found in the names of places from Mexico to Nicaragua. At this time, the Spanish language itself also absorbed many Arabic words. To move on to less tangible impacts, another influence of this time was to create a strong warrior spirit amongst the Iberians. They had been fighting for centuries and had become a warlike and expansionist people. This would of course continue even after they had taken the whole peninsula and the need to further expand was a factor in their decision to create overseas empires. This expansionism was also tinged with a religious mission. The Christian Iberians saw their retaking of Iberia not just as a profane necessity to secure their position and obtain lands for themselves, they also saw it as a holy duty. This, combined with their expansionist tendencies, would see them push the Moors into North Africa and even take control of some of the lands there as well. Even today, Spain owns two exclave cities on the coast of North Africa, surrounded by Morocco. When the New World was discovered, although its native people were not the traditional Muslim enemies, it seemed a logical progression to continue their religious mission of expanding Christianity and converting new souls. If they happened to gain new lands and enrich themselves in the process, well that was just a happy byproduct. The Iberians had largely been left at their own devices when fighting the Moors. The rest of Christianity's attention was indeed focused on taking Muslim territory, but this was via the Crusades and focused on the Middle East. This probably made the Iberians more self-sufficient, as they had to do things themselves. However, the Crusades must surely have influenced their mentality and made them feel even surer that they were doing God's work, and that this work could be continued in the Americas. It's important to note that although this holy war narrative certainly made its way into the Iberian psyche, things were not always a straightforward Muslims versus Christians affair. As I've mentioned, there were several Christian kingdoms, and for much of the time the Muslims were not united either. Often practicality and politics would trump religious conviction and intra-faith alliances would be formed at times. Perhaps a Muslim might ask for Christian help to fight a rival Muslim taifa. Alternatively, Muslim help might be enlisted in succession disputes between the rival Christian kings. From afar, it's sufficient to say that this was a long, holy war in which the Christians drove out the Muslims. This was the general trend, and you don't need to know more. However, look closer, and as is usually the case... Reality was more complex. The simple and romantic story of the Christians slowly retaking their homeland from Muslim invaders became an important part of the Spanish national story, and it was used by politicians to create unity and an ethnogenesis around which their disparate peoples could unite. The way that history gets interpreted often has political motives, and it's safe to say that to a certain extent, the Reconquista has been simplified in Spanish popular imagination in order to serve this purpose. Again, as the current Catalonian independence issue demonstrates, 
as well as the campaign of bombings and political assassinations waged last century by the Basque ETA group, there was, and is, a pressing need to create an origin story that the Spaniards can unify behind. It also shows that this has not been wholly a success. As well as creating a religious zeal, the Reconquista also influenced the form that Iberian expansionism would take in future. Throughout the process, individual heroes had taken it upon themselves to raise armies and fight. Attacks were not always organised by a central authority, and this tradition of individuals taking initiative and securing land and positions, not just for the crown but for themselves, became entrenched. As we shall see as we tell the stories of how the Americas were conquered, this tradition would continue. These Christian heroes, for want of a better word, fighting the Muslims in Iberia, were the proto-conquistadors, and they would continue to operate in more or less the same way in the Americas. So what you had, on the verge of the discovery of the New World, was a warlike society that had cut its teeth over centuries of struggle. The society was also deeply religious, with holy wars and conversion of unbelievers deeply ingrained into the psyche. You also had a society which had just completed a mission which had taken centuries, and found itself on the up. They had new lands and wealth, but they lacked a project. You also had an abundance of hardened and experienced fighters, who suddenly had nobody to fight. Yet more people had seen how these individuals had taken the initiative and done very well out of fighting the Muslims. Some of these people wanted the chance to do the same, but had seemingly missed their opportunity. All this seems to make it almost inevitable that further expansion would take place. Next time, we'll take a closer look at what was happening in the lead-up to Columbus's voyages of exploration. We will see how Spain had almost condensed itself into one more or less unified country and how a strong rivalry between this new state and the Portuguese helped initiate the discovery of the Americas. Until then, thanks for listening. And while you wait, why not check out the History of Southeast Asia podcast?